Cabin Artists presents The Stephen James Wiley Show Here we go, Justin Sabastinus, welcome to my show, episode one Episode one it's my honor. My goodness. <laughs> I love it. And my first time ever on any podcast. Are you serious? Yeah. This is a first maiden voyage across the board. Completely. I love it. Well, I'm going to read a quick bio here uh, from your website, which is brand new. Uh, Justin is a writer, a pastor, a house spouse, and he's not terribly bad at any of these jobs. He loves his wife and his four kids. One of his deepest fascinations is the inner workings of stories and what makes them tick. He has occasionally coached others in their writing projects and is currently working on several feature scripts, which will hopefully be coming to a screen near you. And um, yeah, you're actively a screenwriter. Yes. Yeah. It's, you know, that's living the dream. Someone's giving me green money for real money, putting words on pages to write words. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I feel uh, like I'm just cheating the system, really. <laughs> But, but actually you're participating in the system. And participating in it, yes. The dream. And you've helped me on scripts over the last few years. Yeah. And we've gotten to actually just be together. We've gone on little writing retreats. Yes. Um, yes. You were working on. The lake. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Um, I have some notes here from my production assistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got one, folks. One day you'll meet him. Uh so I'm just kind of running through here. I just, I want to be really efficient and, prof- and professional. Uh, you grew up in Western Montana, Flathead Valley. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell us all. Okay. Well, I was born in San Diego, California. Okay. And then before I have any early memories of that, my family up and moved to Northern Montana on a farm near the Canadian border. Where we moved in with my cousins. So there was 10 kids and four adults sharing one farmhouse. Wow. And we had a pig and a lot of chickens and tens of thousands of acres of wheat, canola, mustard, all kinds of stuff that my uncle was farming. I was like one and a half. Okay. And then, so my earliest memories were of that. And then going over to Cutbank, Montana, uh, which is just a little whistle stop on Highway 2 coldest place on earth they built a giant penguin at the foot of the hill where i lived because there was one day in the 80s that we were the coldest place on earth seriously yes so they built a 30 foot penguin <laughs> to commemorate that fact that's awesome and then recently i well, like 10 years ago somebody made a film called cut bank really and filmed it in Canada and rebuilt a shorter penguin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. Because apparently it was cheaper to shoot apparently. in Canada. I haven't seen the movie. Uh, then we moved to Kalispell, uh, Flathead Valley. And yeah, I loved it. Like Montana is a killer place to grow up. It sounds like it. You know, there's just, you're surrounded by forest or farmland and wildlife and big sky. If you've never been, it truly is. There's just something different about the sky over there. It's just really bigger. Um, yeah. So how many years before you bounced out of there for a bit? I was 17 years old when I bounced out. Uh, okay. It's a great place to grow up. Nobody plans to stay there. Cause it's one it's, of those deals. Yeah. There's nothing to do, uh, career wise. So you want to get out, get to a city. So I moved to Seattle, uh, spent a few years there and then wound up 
in Spokane, Washington. Crazy, dude. Which is ironically a place people plan on leaving. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> except they always end up coming back. They, they do. They, it's the weird thing about Spokane. Most people I meet when I ask where you're from, they're like, well, here. Yeah. And that, that was unusual in Montana. That just was never the answer. People ultimately don't yeah. come back. Yeah. People ultimately leave and don't come back. And then everybody else moves from Southern California to there. So <laughs> sounds about right. Yeah. Which I did. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So what, you know, you're a writer, uh, you are still a pastor. Yes. An mm -hmm. associate pastor at this point. Is that right? Uh, yeah, creative pastor, just, yeah, around helping. Okay. And you've been doing that for how long? 20 years. Okay. In Spokane, Washington, yep. primarily. Mm -hmm. And then you are a house spouse. Please enlighten me on that. Well, that's a new role. That's just kind of a little tongue-in-cheek. I mean, my wife and I, we've always been uh, pretty egalitarian in terms of, you know, sharing the house duties and responsibilities. But yeah. For a long time, I had more of the full-time job, and she had more of the carting kids around and making sure that was covered. Yeah. But this past month, she went very full-time in her job. She has some amazing doors opening up in her career. So I've stepped back in how much I work uh, during the day, so I can be the one driving the kids to and from school and planning the meals, it. and which, honestly, any dads out there, like, it's the gig. Like you enjoy it. I love it. I mean, like how many dads get to like, because my kids, their ages, uh, 15 down to age five. Mm -hmm. And I get to actually have like hours with them each day. That's cool. Yeah. And to get into their worlds, to be there just to help them with their homework and lots of car time with them and the, the random conversations. Like it's a treasure. Uh, I, I wouldn't trade this for the world. I love it. Well, and the cool thing, because I can't comprehend it myself, because I, you're not stressing about money. No. So you're present in the moment with your kids. That's your job. And it's like for me, I, and my immediate thought is like, where would we? But of course, your wife is making a great living. Yeah. And you're making money as well. But she's got, she's doing the, the big digging mm -hmm. and it's great. It's just a switch. And I think I don't. I would be fascinated to experience that. It sounds very fun. Frankly. Yeah. Well, it just has to do with who she is and who I am as well. You know, like not every wife wants that, wants to get out and right. ha have ambition in their career. And that's completely fine. Like, like both to each Absolutely. their own. And I think we, we were just blessed to always have that understanding of each other yeah. that she wanted to go places and do things. And so did I. And that we would always kind of just do the teeter-totter of figuring out who has the focus at which time. Yeah. And I did just kind of early on let her know, like, you know what? A fantastic goal for my life would be trophy husband. <laughs> so, um, wow, that's go for excellent. it, babe. You know, like I told her, like, if you start making the bucks, I will find a way to get abs. I'm like, that, like, that's, that reflects a lot of self-esteem <laughs> on your part. I appreciate that and respect that outstanding oh my gosh um forgive me if i keep referring to this beautiful sheet of paper this this may be a bit of a shit show but that's what we're here <laughs> that's for what we're here for that's what we're here that's what you're here for too I, I i assume well so i just love house spouse i just you guys need to write the book because no one's i've never heard that before i think you guys <laughs> made that one up um, next podcast yes uh so we got we, we've covered a little backstory. The thing I'm curious most about, 
because everybody has their organic spark uh, mm-hmm. in them that you find as a kid. Usually you mm-hmm. see it in your own kids. I do it. And I see it in mine. Um, you have a thing about story um, broadly. And then obviously the expression that has most pronounced come out through you has been, or at least in a focus has been screenwriting mm-hmm. um, and a love of cinema. Uh, specifically, but you've also used storytelling in your work as a pastor. I've mm-hmm. seen you preach, uh, and, and utilize that, that passion. Um, what as a young person kind of kicked that, you know, just lit that little fire. What, how did that come out to you? Um, it's funny. I don't think I've ever actually thought of this question in that, um, uh, light before in terms of my, my youth, because I actually wasn't much of a reader, you, you know, a lot, lots of like all my kids from the time they could start reading, they were like picking up the two, 300 page books as soon as they could. That was not me. I don't remember actually finishing a novel till I was well into my teens, but I do have a memory of being in fourth grade and having a writing assignment that like, I don't remember what it was, but I ended up writing some kind of like horror thing in the fourth grade. Really? That, that was like spooky and kind of gory and creepy and just to start to realize that the written word even in my own self having written it like could evoke such imagery and emotion and Mm -hmm. visceral feeling i think that's where i first kind of got hooked on this idea of uh being able to evoke a response in myself and in other people through writing and then it I think where it actually then picked up again was in seventh grade. See, I, I went to a Christian school where it was like K through 12 altogether. Okay. And what was cool about that for me is I was just always kind of an old soul. So in seventh grade, I was pretty close to some of my classmates, but most of my friends were like the seniors in high school. And wow. they let me like pal around with them. And I ended up getting into the drama club and we did lots of improv. And in my mind, improv and storytelling just go hand in glove because they're just both about making stuff up confidently on the fly Mm -hmm. and just deciding this is reality because I'm saying it or because I'm doing it on the stage. Mm -hmm. Um, And you so writing is like doing improv with yourself. Um, And even in the midst of that, we put on some productions as the students. I mean, we did one that was scripted, but nobody memorized their lines. So we just improved our way through the whole thing. Wow. And kind of had three different performances, which people loved all three of them. And then as a seventh grader, I was paired with a senior and together we wrote uh, a play. And um, I probably contributed only three lines to the thing and was just kind of there while he typed things up. Um but that someone would like at a young age, give me the power to create craft something yeah, that was going to be then played out in front of other people. It was just such a rewarding real experience that, Oh yeah. I think I got hooked there. And, um, then, uh, as a young adult over in Seattle, I started getting fascinated by film and the film industry always loved movies. My older brother, um, would always steal my dad's VHS player and he would come up with these little, comedic skits and sketches and i was his guinea pig where he would dress me up like a baby in a diaper and just wonderful yeah do all these crazy things that would probably be so embarrassing today so glad social media did not exist when we were kids seriously can you imagine oh 
<laughs> I wouldn't show my face in public. No. It could be very bad. It could be very bad. So Our and, poor kids. And the seventh grade thing, mm-hmm. that had to be really eye-opening to what's possible as far as... Because that's that age where all of a sudden... Every the whole like world, the big world starts to hit you, yeah, in good and bad ways. Mm-hmm. But it had to be um, kind of inspiring to see somebody and contribute your little line to somebody creating an entire thing that then went out into the world. Yeah, that that must have clicked something in your brain of like that's possible now. Yeah, and at the time it didn't feel like that. At the time I was still focused on you know girls i was a musician yeah um all kinds of other things but um i think later it 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 just it made sense in a narrative thread that's been through my whole life Mm -hmm. um and through the film thing i kind of wanted to just get right into maybe directing or producing or having my own production studio Mm -hmm. and i had this opportunity i went to a a conference and ralph winter the producer of the x-men movies and some of the original star trek movies he was one of the keynote speakers and I got to go just ask him a question. I was young twenties at the time of like, Hey, if you were my age and you wanted to get into film, mm-hmm. like, would you go to college? And he was like, absolutely not. And this was even really pre YouTube being much of a thing, but he was already encouraging me. He's like, you get online and you can find some videos of people showing you how to do it better than a film school can. Interesting. He's like, go to college for anything else. You know, go for history, go for philosophy, go for story, and then just start making movies. Wow. So I took part of his advice. I I kind of was in my job. I was working at the church making some, you know, shorts and things like that for video announcements. But I decided, okay, I do want to go get a degree. And I chose creative writing Mm -hmm. uh, with a minor in screenwriting so that I could learn the nuts and bolts of how do you craft a story. Mm -hmm. And it was a valuable experience. I, I would recommend it. Awesome. So, and where'd you go for that? Eastern Washington University. Okay. So you did that when you bounced back to Spokane? Yep. That I graduated 2009. Okay. I think yep. one of the things people struggle with, because you and I are both technically middle-aged men, I, and I relish it. I do. It's I a, need a minute. It's a, <laughs> it's a powerful feeling. <laughs> Feel the authority. Um, it, it, it can be a struggle when you, mm-hmm. once you're married, I had like a really horrible crisis point sadly in my mid 20s which mm-hmm. just shows you how stupid you are in your 20s if you're in your 20s i apologize uh you will never be as dumb as you are right now so just feel <laughs> no. tremendous hope for the future yes. it's gonna get better um and and have some humility i none of us ever do you probably mm-hmm. won't either uh but i thought my life was over i would i had gotten married i had a mortgage I was 26, 27, and I thought, I can't, I failed to go do any of the things I wanted to do. I'm not a world-famous recording artist. Mm -hmm. I have not made any movies. I have not made my first million in real estate. I had all these vast, uh, you know, in some ways, unrealistic ambitions. Um, And it was extremely depressing. And then, of course, you revamp because it's that or you die. Mm -hmm. And how for you as... A married guy. You started having kids not long after you were married. Am I right? Uh, we had a few years there, but yeah, a few years. Yeah. Um, continuing that pursuit mm-hmm. was that challenging. You know, my wife and I often laugh at this and just shake our heads because we don't 
quite understand a what we were thinking and b how we kind of pulled it off. <laughs> we were both working full time, um, sharing one car. Wow, had a kid. And doing college, both of us doing college. Oh, yeah. You both at were at the same time. At EWU. Yeah. And so it was a lot of bus riding. It was a lot of like late nights, early mornings. And I don't look back on that time and think like, man, that was stressful. I wouldn't do it again. It was like the dream. We loved our life. That sounds fun. Like actually. we were often just like eating quesadillas with mango salsa from Costco and... <laughs> It was the best. Like we loved it. <laughs> you That's know? great. Um, and it, it's weird to think back on that and, and and wonder like how did our schedules actually work? But and how did we still like like each other at the end of each day? Yeah. But we loved each other more and more through it all, and we love our kids. And yeah, I don't know. Um, and I just love having that story of that time that it's we just rad. we just did that. You know, we yeah. we just grind ground it out. Um, but yeah, it just kind of felt like the thing to do. You just put your nose to the the grindstone, you put your hand to the plow and you just keep pushing and be That's patient cool. with it. Yeah. Which I, I don't know. I want to kind of throw this question back to you because you started talking about, you know, like you weren't a major recording artist and, and I, I, I'm just was so, so thrilled in these past few weeks when I saw you were putting music back out online. And I, I wanted to hear a little bit about your journey with music because, you were in Nashville. Uh, yes. You know, you, you went there. You 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 went for it. You came back. And then I I remember this distinct time where it's like you gave away your guitar and you mm -hmm. put all that away. I don't know how extreme you got in kind of like closing down yeah. the musician side of Steve. And now that's back. It is back. It's like a resurrection story, man. There's a little bit there, isn't there? I love it. Tell, tell me about what like what's going on. <laughs> This was not supposed to be about me, my friend. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, there was, I mean, brief uh, history, but I, my wife and I, I did a lot of real estate in 2009 after the real estate crash, because I was heavily involved in real estate. Um, we lost everything, went bankrupt, huge, uh, huge shit show of sadness and loss and selling cars and everything and then um yeah decided hey we've got nothing maybe let's not think we're dead and go to nashville and and you know i'd been writing a lot of songs and i thought you know maybe i could make it as a songwriter um or and maybe catch on as a recording artist and so in 09 we i sold my last car <laughs> took that money Got to Nashville through an extraordinary series of events to, that we found a place to live and all this stuff. And within like the first six weeks, I'd lost like 20 pounds. I was playing three, four nights a week. Um, like people were really liking what I was doing and it was good. And then um, a really awful thing happened um, where uh, a guy had done business with it turned out he had stolen a bunch of money uh from the business that i had ultimately given him but there was all these people who were missing thousands of dollars Oof. and uh sadly kind of it i wasn't psychologically spiritually you name it there it really 
pardon my French, but it kind of fucked up my guts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I couldn't, I couldn't, after going bankrupt and losing her, and then it was like a year later, it was like, and so I, I never got back. And, uh, and ultimately we, we moved home for a little bit. Then we moved back to Nashville. We're there for two years where I tried to kind of find it again, but I could never really find it again. And, and I also concluded to really make it in the music business, the way it was being presented to me and the opportunities I was getting, I thought I will lose my family. Mm, Yeah. This is why people come here and get divorced. That's real. It's seriously real. It's playing late at night in rooms full of booze and women and men who are uh, not always going to make the best decisions Yeah, and flattery up the ass. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, which I like it. I like the flattery. <laughs> and, you know, so I concluded like this isn't going to be something that I, this isn't a price I want to pay because I'm not sure I'm the guy who can come out of this unscathed. So we moved back to Spokane. Mm-hmm. So, and then I started doing more real estate stuff again because it's what I know how to do. I can do it well. And the market was different. And and yeah, like you said, I decided to call it. Um, in, in a certain, without calling it, but I actually worked really hard after I got to Spokane. I put out two records, That's right. but I never told anybody about them. <laughs> so I didn't really put them out. You could say <laughs> like, I have friends who are talking about this latest EP. I just, it's technically a re-release, mm-hmm. but they have no memory of me ever playing this for them. And they're people I've known since fourth grade. <laughs> so it's embarrassing, honestly, <laughs> like to even say I have an ambition to be, to have had, have had an ambition. It's, it's embarrassing. So yes, I didn't give all my guitars away. I gave the mm-hmm. one away. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm back at it. And, and f- thankfully it's from a different point of view. It's a life work. You know, this about mm-hmm. creative work. Yeah. Do you want to be well-known as respected and appreciated for what, for the creations you've taken responsibility for and brought forth into the world? Hell yes, you do. Mm -hmm. I do too. Yeah. But we both know the people who do get recognized. It's a life work. Yeah. It's not about being famous at all necessarily, let alone tomorrow. And that's, I think something we could probably both resonate on is finding that place where now for me, music is a life work. It's something I'm going to give to my kids it can be whatever it is. If it goes really well and people in this world know about, or it somehow in, impacts or makes somebody's life experience enhanced. Awesome. I won, mm-hmm. but honestly, I just won by making it. And so that's where I'm at now. And fortunately I'm learning how to promote my stuff. I'm learning how to team up with, uh, other individuals to help me professionals to help me like a business. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. <laughs> um, and, and, and even this, frankly, right? You know, this is your first time on a podcast. It's not going to be the last. You're <laughs> well, starting a whole new chapter. Yeah. In in this in the work you're doing as a screenwriter, you're you're officially a paid writer. It's not mm-hmm. just something that can feel like a hobby that you enjoy. It's bringing in money. Yeah. It's yeah. Be, getting a, a a physical, tangible response and productivity, and that's what's starting to happen for me as well. And this podcast, this show, it's, it's a long-term endeavor. It's a long-term contribution to this great, beautiful mystery we're all functioning in. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, that's where I'm at musically. And, and it, in it, in every respect, mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a reemergence from the ground, uh, in a new and healthier way for me, you know, mm-hmm. and how, how does that hit you? Like the life, you know, your writing, your creative expression, mm-hmm. it's how, how is it, what is your perspective on how that fits in your life? What that is to your long-term existence? Well, I mean, something, uh, just a little bit more about m- your music, but okay. to, to answer your question as well, because uh, I think that this is a part that applies to both of us. We're finally at that age where I think we have some stuff that has slow cooked. Yes. You know, and an audience always tells the difference when mm-hmm. something has come from something that like slow cooked and then like was released into the world versus something that was just like just barfed out into the world. I think you're right. Uh, I mean, you hear so much of like Christopher Nolan. He had the idea for Inception when he was like 16 years old and he tried to write it for 10 years before he figured out what it was actually about and then was able to, you know, finally finish the script at least and get it into production. Wow. And I think that kind of stuff really, really shows where your life brings you to places to connect with something real in yourself to go with the ideas that you've just kind of carried around. Mm-hmm. And for me, even just listening to your EP, I felt that because, um, you know, I, I think we all have had that like honest experience of a friend gives you something that they recorded and you're listening to it. And the whole time you're thinking like my friend recorded this. And so like, that's why you enjoy it. Right. You don't even know if you actually enjoyed it. Well, my first time listening through your EP, I forgot it was you. Like by song three. Sweet. And I think that was like a win. Like, I'm like, I was like, oh yeah, this is Steve. Like I was just enjoying the chill and the vibe of it and the journey it was taking me on. So, uh, it was something slow cooked, you know, it it, it was in there. And, um, but I think the, the challenge is in writing to like, you have to keep finding those things that are pretty universal and like genuine to you and bringing it to new work. Cause right now I have two threads going. I have some, some of my own projects, you know, just spec work that, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a few screenplays that are in various states of drafts that need to get finished and sent to people to read them and pick them apart so I can, you know, make them something. Um, I decided to try my hand at a graphic novel Mm -hmm. this year. Um, which surprised me, but uh, I realized there's a lot to that because uh, I'm not a visual artist at all. I cannot draw. But then I did this master class with Neil Gaiman, and he did this whole little mini section on the fact that you don't have to draw a graphic novel. You can just write one and hire artists. I was like, this is amazing. It's <laughs> a revelation. Oh, let's do that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But all that to say, um, then collaborating with others uh, just you know, having enough of my own struggle and work that I've done to, to like really confidently like react and respond and bring that to the table when it's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, cause right now the, the work I'm doing is mostly a collaboration between, uh, someone who wants to direct these projects. So he's got kind of got the big 10,000 foot view, knows what he wants and doesn't want. And then me and another writer who are doing most of the, uh, actual scene work and outlining and re-outlining and we're the one one of the scripts we're now on draft i want to say 21 Mm -hmm. um and because and that's actually been kind of fun it's 
and equally frustrating. Like, like you, <laughs> you just want to get it done and move on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. But to see that there's others who are willing to just keep after it until it really finally resonates mm-hmm. to, to know that like, it's okay that it's a stinker on draft one and draft five and that it's still just okay by draft 12. And you just keep poking at it and prodding it until you find like, what, what is the like actual heart, the actual center of this thing to let that finally emerge into the daylight. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's been a rewarding process. Cause you've what you finished the script. And then you, I think you told me it was, it's like, it's changed. It, the story has fundamentally altered as you've, I mean, it's like you're, you've written four to five different movies in, in some respects. Yeah. In some respects, there's some, you know, there's some characters and some key elements that, that maintain. And, um, that's kind of the fun and the, the terrifying part of the editing process is like, there's things at the very beginning that were like a core part of the idea, whether it's a scene or a character or just some aspect of it that eventually you start to realize like, no, that that's actually a roadblock and we need to throw that out. Right. Interesting. And (laughs) because it's keeping a better story from emerging. Uh, So can you tell us at all what the story's about? I cannot, I can tell you it's sci-fi. I think that's about all I I can (laughs) say. It's very general. It's very general. You did. You wrote a spec script, though, Mm -hmm. that you finished, and then you went back. You've been. Are you still going back? And I'm still working on that one. Um, Sadly and luckily, I've been busy enough with these other projects that I haven't given it much. Um, What was the working title on that one? uh, The working title was Samara's Passage, but even for this next draft, it's going to be called Mothership. Okay. And it's a sci-fi. It's a sci-fi. I love the story. And I love sci-fi. I I used to, you know, in my creative writing days, in creative writing college, they get kind of snooty about the idea of genre and encourage everybody to write literature. Oh, yeah. Um, But I think there's such a beauty to the crutch of genre, uh, both for the writer and for the audience. Uh, it just gives you something familiar and comfortable to slip into something that can go much deeper. Absolutely. Um, and I was actually surprised. I don't know why, because I grew up loving sci-fi. I, you know, my dad was a bit of a Trekkie. And I would just, I remember sitting on his lap watching Star Trek in oh, the yeah. 90s, you know, the next generation. And um I've always loved Star Wars. So it shouldn't have surprised me that I was so drawn to sci-fi. Um, but the ideas uh, and the possibilities of thinking about the future. And I I came to realize, um, I think it's important to know your, uh, kind of ethos when it comes to the genre you want to work within, Mm -hmm. because there's sci-fi where even Star Trek, you know, you, there's just these fake things you come up with that, you know, we're all going to pretend you can go from galaxy to galaxy and star system to star system in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, I'm far more interested in what I like to call plausible sci-fi. Okay. In other words, like, you know, in a hundred to 200 years, the stuff that I'm writing could happen. Yes. Uh, the technology could be there. Um, that kind of stuff really fascinates me because I think it, it, I think it helps us grapple with some real questions of like why we have the ambitions we do when it comes to technology and space travel Mm -hmm. and, uh, there's so many, I mean, just think about the idea of traveling to another planet. 
Oh, yeah. That's tied in with some of humanity's greatest hopes and some of its greatest fears. Yes. His greatest hopes in terms of like, we might be able to do that. And how awesome would that be to yeah. find a habitable planet? And that's kind of, that ties in with mothership and what it's about a little bit. But also its greatest fears in terms of like, what if we need to? And are we ready? And can we? Right. Do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it just automatically taps into some universal themes um that can get pretty emotional so oh yes do you i always find it fascinating the the artistic community in the world that we're living in and mm -hmm. i say that in a, in a global sense but you know for us it's the united states uh how film even music you know artists you could talk about bowie or spielberg or any of these guys or gals and they Artists peer into the future. They grapple with things that we think of like that could never happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, like the stuff with AI, you know, we've looked at droids or, or Jarvis on Iron Man or Friday later on, uh, and think, Oh, how cool, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden Jarvis is basically real. Yeah. Right now. That that has, that's actually become a challenge for me. Um, I think in both of the sci-fi scripts I'm working on, because because uh, one of them is set like thirty or forty years in the future. Okay, and we're like, okay, we got to make it futuristic, and so we try to invent these technologies that feel futuristic. Mm -hmm. But then anything I can think of it's already being made. Like somebody already has a prototype of it. Like, I think I invented yeah. it. I get online and it's like, oh, some dude in Japan is like demoing this at a trade show. Like, you gotta be kidding me. And and so I'm like, Interesting. I, I don't know that, it, it, it's almost like human capability and human imagination are coming at this meeting point. Yeah. And I, I kind of, it makes me, you know, uh, the, we all want to live in a different era, but I just think back to the fifties when you were imagining things that could not be done yet. Yes. And so much of our sci-fi was based on that space travel and flying cars. And, yep. and it's funny, the things they didn't think of in terms of like that we take for granted for, you know, Absolutely. like the idea of an iPhone would have seemed extremely magical and implausible, implausible to you, 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 like they they were thinking the flying cars the thing we're gonna get yeah but they couldn't have imagined a, a, a facetime call yeah <laughs> or a handheld device with all of human knowledge in it <laughs> what in your back pocket it's insane it's amazing yeah so i think it's a it's a pro and a con the, the pro yeah. is um working in the sci-fi genre you have to it has to be far more just character and theme driven mm -hmm. than uh, the spectacle. Big time. Because nobody cares about the spectacle anymore. It's You can't blow people's minds that much anymore. And everybody, th that's the thing that I think is wrong is everybody demeans sci-fi as somehow unintellectual or unheartfelt. And when you look at the sci-fi of the last 10 years, it's got guts mm -hmm. i mean you and i we watched interstellar which we've both probably seen it multiple times mm -hmm. but interstellar makes me cry every time mm -hmm. 
And it is pure sci-fi. I just watched uh, Infinity War and Endgame two back to back, one day after the other, with my dad, who's never seen him. Hmm. And my dad was, you know, 70 years old, riveted. Yeah. Like, and and me all over again, five-hour movie, essentially. It's a five-hour movie, five and a half hours. Hmm. And I thought, this is amazing storytelling. Yeah. And it's a comic book on screen. That's all it is. Yeah. And the, it's one of the greatest cinematic things ever made, in my opinion. Now, people might think I'm wrong, but it doesn't matter. It and the whole world was riveted and gripped by this moment. I love that stuff. Yeah. And that's all the cheesy, phony, baloney genre versus, you know, Dead Poet Society or something, which is also amazing and awesome. I yeah. love all that stuff. Absolutely. And for me, because I write comedy, mm-hmm. um, at least some people think so, <laughs> uh, that's that has its own issue of like, are you finding the human element within the funny or are you just writing, you know, a Leslie Nielsen movie, which <laughs> there's room for that, which bring him back, man. God. I just watched Pink Panther with one of my sons. Yes. Uh, the Steve Martin one. Uh, first time he'd seen it. And I'm like, oh man, I miss this. It's so good. When a guy could just fall down the stairs and you laugh your head off and yep. that's all it needed. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny because my daughter, Reagan, she loves that movie. And then I introduced her to the Peter Sellers version. Oh, yes. And she's like, this is kind of boring. (laughs) And I was like, it's Peter freaking Sellers. Laugh. Just show her uh, strange love. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great movie. That is good stuff. So good. Let's refer to the outline here. This has been wonderful, man. Yeah. I think we're doing good. Yeah, come on. Look at this. We're on. We video. always have a good conversation. How we could do. it go bad? We do. We could do this without cameras and microphones. So I have buttons here. Um, oh, look, I should have p- played this before. And now today's featured guest. <laughs> there we go. Are we just getting started? Now we're starting. Okay. We're, that was a warm-up. We'll play the so, show intro at the end. If you haven't gotten your popcorn yet and you're listening, <laughs> now's the time. Oh, my gosh. And that's where they turned us off. Exactly. Um, influences. You and I both have influences mm. of, uh, or the influence, well, we have a lot of shared influences, but Stephen Pressfield. Yes. Um. That guy, anyone out there, if you're an artist, you probably know his work uh, or you've read The War of Art or Turning Pro. If you haven't and you're a creative, go read them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, how I'm just curious in your journey, how does Pressfield, where does he play in, in your various evolution, evolutionary steps? Because mm-hmm. um, his, his work has been so profound. Yeah, I'm trying to recall the first time I read War of Art must have been a good 10 years ago. Yeah. And felt just like such a great kick in the butt because that was when I was a few years past having graduated. So, so, you know, let's talk about the um, the patience in the idea of because here I am just enjoying like being a writer, uh, but got to remind myself like it was a long road to get here. And for me, being a pastor, too, it was it was a road of faith. Mm-hmm. It, it was not just a road of like ambition and failure and then finally like broke through 
but you know i'm someone who believes in the guidance of the divine of god and the Heck holy yeah. spirit and um i thought my life was gonna go a certain on a certain tra trajectory where i was like doing creative stuff at a church and going to school for filmmaking and and story and i thought my trajectory was going to be a gradual like move away from church and into film and production but then i believe god speaks and he speaks sometimes more directly in what i call a still small voice or like a whisper mm -hmm. um or sometimes through other people who i would call prophetic yeah um people who just have insight um and are able to say things that you realize like oh they don't even know what that means but i hear god speaking to me through that oh yeah so through various um things like that i i had a pretty clear moment a few years past graduating from college and trying to screenwrite and then having our third kid and my schedule not affording me to actually have creative energy and just kind of stopping all scripts for like a couple years I just stayed frustrated there, but then suddenly felt this guidance from God to not focus on that for now, mm -hmm. to be patient with that and to trust that God put those desires in my heart and he was going to help them come to pass, but he had some other work for me to do, which was to help build the local church that I've been a part of. Yeah. And that took me on a journey of... Uh, becoming a pastor because mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't been at the time starting to to preach and uh, that was actually a surprising thing how rewarding um, the practice of preparing sermons and delivering them to an audience in fact now I look at that as some of the best preparation for being a writer mm -hmm. that I could have ever had yeah, because sometimes I would sit there and be so frustrated that I haven't written anything in months or weeks or even years but then I would look back at my sermon notes and realize like, oh, I probably actually written like 300 pages worth of stuff. Mm -hmm. It was just always for like, I have 30 minutes this Sunday and then I have 30 minutes this Sunday and I have to deliver that. Right. So not just that it's draft of stuff, it's stuff that I have to be prepared to say in front of people in such a way that it's supposed to help them oh, or yeah. make an impact on them emotionally or spiritually. Yeah. And uh, so I thank God for that preparation. Absolutely. And basically what I felt God basically, you know, promised to me was like, you focus on this and someday the things going on out there are going to connect to you mm -hmm. and the right door is going to open at the right time. Yeah. And that's precisely what happened. Cause my wife and I, we started uh, pastoring a campus um, of our church. That was like a five year journey where yeah. we went out, we launched it, COVID hit, it shrank, it grew again. And then we just lost our building. We weren't able to maintain it and we merged it back into the other one. And right in that same year of it seeming to fall apart and have to merge back in, I randomly met this guy who in our very first conversation, mm -hmm. again, I believe God speaks, I felt to share with him something that I wrote kind of as a prophetic word, mm -hmm. just to encourage him to say like, hey, God told me he, uh, I should read this to you. And he looked at me, he's like, are you a writer? And I was like, well, yeah. And he's like, well, do you, do you want to write a movie with me? <laughs> and I was like, well, well, sure. But you know, that, that 
Guys do that. Sure, guys sure. who I didn't know he was an actual filmmaker. Yeah, he could. I didn't know he had money to 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 like make movies <laughs> and yeah. a production company. I thought he was just another guy. And then within six months, I'm working for the guy part time. And, and it's incredible. The, the door, like it, it was absolutely the fulfillment of a promise. So sorry, the question was about Pressfield. No, but all of though. that gets back. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just one thing I wanted to that you said about because you. Like I, I've, I went to your small church. Yes. That's where we came on Christmas when we had none of our gear. Christmas Eve, we were sitting in little kid seats. Yes. Um, and, but I've known you since I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so anyhow, that's, that's that. But I remembered watching you speak and thinking as Christians, you think of, oh, he's giving the sermon, but all a sermon is, is a one man oratory show. Mm-hmm. Now, some people aren't doing that and their sermons suck, but, <laughs> but, or, or they're just heartfelt personal sharings. Sure, sure. But good sermons are a one man oratory presentation that invites you into story. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. It's, it's no different than a one man show on Broadway. You're telling an, in, uh, an hopefully a compelling story. Mm -hmm. Um, and in this and in this setting, it's regarding elements of faith, and so I always loved that point of view that came to me, you know, during that time where I thought that's what this is, yeah. And that's when you know it's good, and when you know, like, eh, I really could have stayed home today, but mm -hmm. but that's that was what you were doing. So you know, it, it's a it is I think hugely contributing to your growth as a storyteller. Yes. Um, and it makes sense why mm -hmm. that would be almost its own education. Yeah. Even to the extent where um, I hit a point a few years in where, you know, you read all kinds of books on how to craft a sermon and that kind of thing. And I realized, like, I went to school for structuring stories. I'm going to bring that into how I prepare my sermons. Mm -hmm. Like, what's act one, act two, act three? Bingo. What's the journey yeah. of the character in this story? And who is the character? Well, the character always, to a certain extent, had to be me. Mm -hmm. So I'd always try to put enough of myself into the sermon, but then had to make it universal enough that the character is the audience, mm -hmm. them on their own sp spiritual journey. And what were the obstacles you face? What And that's act two. You know, and how do you overcome those obstacles? How do you find success or yes. failure? And what are the stakes? And are the stakes raising? As you, And I, structure became my friend mm -hmm. in writing sermons. And I learned that structure kept me accountable. Yes. Because sometimes I would just try to do something that was just out of my own feeling and like just start typing and, and like, yeah, I could fill 30 minutes of space with this. But right. then I would try to put it through the filter of a structure and realize like it falls apart pretty quickly. And I didn't actually think of or respect the audience in the first time that I like Bingo. crafted the sermon. I really just thought about how can I get through this 30 minutes? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and all of that had to do with Pressfield as well. Like, like Pressfield uh, kind of kicked my butt the first time I read him in the best possible way to wake me up to realize like, you know, this is supposed to be a struggle. You know, there yeah. should be blood on your knuckles from the process of trying to hone your craft, whether it is a sermon. Yep. Or, and anyone who's preached knows this, especially when you first get started. So, so, uh, I don't think my wife would mind me sharing this because she would preach occasionally. And, um, when you, 
preaching occasionally is the worst because you're in no rhythm of mm. preparing a message. And usually you know like a good two months out that it's coming, maybe a month, and you almost have way too much time to prepare. And you have way too much time to like get in your own head and like freak out and say like, I have no business doing this. And I like, I can't stand in front of people and say this and who am I? And, but you would go in preaching more often. You go through that like on a weekly basis and it's a battle. Just exactly, you know, there's resistance to it, exactly the way that Pressfield yes. lays out. Um, and then I was really happy to discover, I think Turning Pro was his book that helped me even more than The War of Art. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would encourage anyone else who's read some of Pressfield and only read his, you know, books about art, read his novels and, or listen to them. The audiobooks are fantastic. Which, what are they? What, um, what's the... uh, so there is Gates of Fire. I think I'm getting the title correct. And Killing Rommel are the two that I've read so far. Mm -hmm. And um, he's the real deal. Like, it, And that's what's great is to like actually see like this guy knows how to craft a fascinating story. Yeah. That really draws you in and brings you to like a really specific emotional place. Um, and... He really is masterful. So. Well, and he demonstrates humility because yeah. when I remember I saw a video of him talking and he pulled out a box, a mm -hmm. huge box from his trunk. He's out and he said, these are screenplays that I've written that mm -hmm. have never seen and will probably never see the light of day. Yeah. Spec screenplays. And it's, uh, there had to be 30 or 40. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh crap. Like, yeah. yeah. And he's totally at peace with it. Mm -hmm. No one will ever know what these stories are. And I'm okay with it because I honored what I was given. Yeah. And that's... Whew. And there's a lot to that. I mean, I, I remember James Gunn. Uh, I, I would always love to hear his talk because he's not just a director. He's a, a writer. Um, his only piece of advice he gives writers is finish it. Yeah. Um you don't have to finish it and love it and submit it. But until you finish something, you can't move on to the next thing. And it's so many things that I, I, I know that so many things I'm working on right now are just my learning pieces and I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had some of those in the past. Uh, and there's some that I didn't finish and I, they're haunting me and I'm like, okay, I, I do have to go finish those now that I'm in the mode of knowing how to finish things. Really? Uh, Cause I know there's things that I'm like, until I figure out some of these parts and pieces, even if they're terrible. And I was encouraged another screenwriter I saw on Twitter recently. I'm forgetting his name. Sorry, I'm not mentioning you, your handle right now. But um, he listed out his first like 15 scripts and uh, rated his own stuff. And it was like, awful, not professional. Okay, but got picked up. Professional, but nobody picked it up. Okay, okay. Got options, never made. And I was like, that's just so encouraging to it see. Of <laughs> just like, yes. you, you, it's work. You yeah. know, it, it is absolutely work. And if we, it's when we take ourselves too seriously uh, and, and think that everything we do needs to be absolutely loved by everybody out there. Yes, and sold. That, that we lose it.